true mark of a Christian is not if they've been baptized, if they come to church, if they take communion, uh, if they do these things. No, the true mark of God is shown by the fruit of the Spirit that's displayed, that is an outworking of your heart that's been changed, the outworking of your heart that's been made new, that you're walking in newness of life. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. As we turn there, let's be reminded that this is the very Word of God that we hold in our hands. Uh, Over 2,500 times in the Old Testament alone, it says that God spoke what was written in these pages. Uh, We know that Scripture has authority in our lives. It has authority for a doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. We know that scripture is sufficient, meaning um, that we have everything to know, uh, that we need to know about life and godliness. We, We have all we need to know about who God is and what God requires of us. We know that scripture is inerrant and infallible, and that means that it is totally true and absolutely trustworthy. And we know that the word of God is active for today. It's living, it's powerful, it's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. So as we look at God's word together, let's let his word be the authority in our lives to change, to grow us. May we repent as needed this morning, and may the Holy Spirit encourage us as we look at these words. But let's consider the idea of security uh, a little bit this morning. We all have a desire to live uh, a secure life, uh, don't we? Uh, But what does that look like? Uh, The world would say, well, there's basically three things um, that you need to have in order to be secure in your life. You need to be healthy, you need to have some sort of wealth, and you need to have control of all of that. So this means you're not afflicted by any major disease. Financially, this means that you have everything that you need to pay your bills, um, to maybe put away money for emergencies, and uh, to have enough money to buy whatever toys that we would like to have. Uh, We know that uh, for the health side, our health is is generally good. We don't have uh, anything that's hindering us from achieving the life goals that we have, Uh, but uh, maybe the biggest piece of that, this is feeling that we are in control, uh, so that somehow we control what happens to us. Uh, but as much as the world would like to tell us that we can achieve that, uh, if we are just honest with ourselves, or we look at history, the history of the world, or we look at even our own personal experiences, we know uh, that none of this can guarantee absolute security. The ongoing events in our world today are proof positive of this, whether it's viruses, whether it's uh, natural disasters, whether it's things in the political sphere. There's nothing like a natural disaster to remind us, man, that we are not in control at all. And only the Lord uh, sovereignly controls the weather and these things. But there's another side of security uh, as well, and this is the the side of eternal security. Uh, And as we've already seen in our study of the book of Romans, we are born knowing that God exists, that he exists, and we are born knowing that there is purpose and there is eternal implications for our lives today. And whether we admit it 
or we even bother to think about it, we long for eternal security. We do. Um, Yet we suppress that truth like that beach ball that we try and keep under the water. We suppress that truth, the Bible says, in unrighteousness. Uh, And like we learned last week, all of us, Jew or Gentile, we've been given the gift of a conscience. And that conscience doesn't operate perfectly. Uh, It is not uh, free of the fall and the curse of sin, but it does tell us we have this uh, innate sense in us of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, And there's also this nagging feeling that we will be judged for our wrongdoing. It's hard to get rid of that, even though some people do. They try very hard to totally suppress their conscience. And we learn that there's no excuse, no matter if you know God's law or if you are totally ignorant of it. All will be judged according to God's perfect standard. And so the question is, well, how do we find eternal security in the midst of all of this? Well, some fool themselves into the lie uh, thinking that man is basically good and that a good God would never send anyone to hell. Uh, Some believe that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds and God will be pleased by that. Uh, And as we've already learned from chapter 1, many uh, try to deny the existence of God and so any kind of judgment is ridiculous to them. And, you know, a massive amount of people in our world today are led astray by various forms of these views. And so many find comfort uh, in that, since such large numbers of people believe them. Many find comfort the masses believe this. Um, And so it must be true. But if you are a true Christian here this morning, if you've repented, if you put your trust in Christ alone, confronting these lies about security is one of the most loving things that you can do. Um, Just as it would be loving to warn somebody if there's an armed intruder in their house or if there's a natural disaster headed their way, how much more, how much more loving is it to warn unbelievers about their separation from God and that they are under condemnation now and that there's going to be more condemnation to come? And we have to show that they are dead in their sins before we can show God's grace and the redemption that is offered. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did in his ministry when he preached the repentance of sins. And that is exactly what Jesus did as well as he started his ministry. You all remember the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, has been implied and taught in various ways, some uh, very well, some very wrong Uh, But Jesus talks about a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He talks about lust. He talks about anger. He talks about uh, judging others. Pastor Pilgrim mentioned that last week. He talks about giving to the poor, loving our enemies. Uh, What else? Uh, False converts. But look at how chapter 5 ends with this verse in verse 48. Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, wow. Wait a minute. Whoa. Whoa. Jesus, you're telling us that all these things that you're encouraging us to do will not measure up with God's standard? Jesus is saying, yeah, that's exactly right. He said previously, he said, even the Gentiles who do not know God, they can love their enemies. But the standard before the Heavenly Father is perfection. And he goes on in his ministry to frequently uh, call out those who are listening for their hypocrisy, their religiosity. In Matthew 7, he warns uh, those who even claim to do miracles. What did he say? He said, depart from me, I don't know you. Uh, so any person who builds spiritual security on any self-made foundation will have their so-called works swept away 
in God's judgment. And this is the same theme that Paul is picking up here in the beginning of Romans. And he's already shattered any sense of false security by saying that all of us, Jew or Gentile, whether uh, we are moral or we are not, are without excuse and under God's judgment. But in verse 17, here in our passage this morning, he turns specifically to the Jews, God's chosen people, and he's going to show that they also are living under a false sense of spiritual security. And so he's going to point this out in three areas. And so these are our points this morning. If you're taking notes, uh, three areas. First, we're going to see that the Jewish people had false security from their lineage. Then we're going to see they had false security from their knowledge of the law. And then we'll see that they had false security in their ceremonies, specifically with circumcision. So let's read our passage together this morning. Romans 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word that has been already sung this morning and now read. Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us, you would speak through these pages conform us to your image. Lord, help us to understand these verses this morning because we need your help. We are, uh, we are still struggle with our sinful nature, Lord. And although you have saved us, you have brought us out of darkness, we still need your understanding and help. So we ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at our first point, false security in their lineage. And so verse 17 starts out by saying, but if you call yourself a Jew, and we'll just stop there for a moment. Um, So in order to understand this section, we have to spend a moment and discover what this means. Every ethnic people group in the world uh, has uh, some sense of esteem for themselves. They hold themselves uh, in high esteem. And that's, a, that's, in a sense, understandable because God uh, has created us all differently. He's, he's created us um, in different cultures and different customs. And we should look at those things as beautiful uh, as long as they are in agreement with God's word. Uh, but in spite of... Uh, Uh, even in our own country, in spite of those who are trying to redefine and trash the history of America, there's 
still many reasons for us as Americans to be proud of who we are and what the Lord has done in our own country. Uh, but some of us also may take pride in our family heritage, our lineage. We may have ancestors that we are proud of. Uh, the Jewish people, though, they could take this to a whole nother level uh, because they were not only proud of their ethnicity, ethnicity, they were being totally set apart by God, but they could be proud of their lineage as well. They reveal, revered who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and others. Uh, but more than this, they are very special because they had the very hand of God, the very direct blessing of God on their lives. Uh, and the name Jew uh, comes from the name Judah. Of course, we know Judah was one of the 12 tribes. And the, although earlier uh, in the Old Testament, they were referred to as the Hebrews, um, by the time uh, they had been put into captivity by the Babylonian Empire, by the time that happened, the whole race uh, was, had become known as the Jews. Uh, and the root meaning of the word Judah means praised. It means praised. And so the Jews of Paul's day, they were uh, taking that to the bank. They definitely believed themselves to be worthy of that title, praised. But Genesis 12 reminds us uh, what the divine calling was that the Jewish people had, uh, what they were to be. Does anybody remember what that was? Close. What's that? A blessing. That's right. A witness, yes, but they were to be, uh, in Genesis 12, uh, it says that through you, all the families or all the people groups of the earth will be blessed. But of course, we know um, they had lost sight of this calling, didn't they? Um, and this is shown most clearly in the story of Jonah, uh, who we studied here at Shoreline. Jonah had become arrogant and did not believe that other nations deserved to know the goodness of God. John MacArthur says of this section, he says, instead of viewing those divine truths and blessings as a trust from a gracious and forgiving God, they viewed them as their right by merit. They believed they were specially blessed, not because of God's grace, but because of their own goodness. They felt superior and proud. Instead of boasting in their great God and in his gracious revelation of himself to them, they boasted in their own supposed greatness for having received it. But the Lord sent other prophets to warn the Jews of this as well. In Micah chapter 3, 11 and 12, this is what it says. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So Micah was prophesying against corrupt leaders who were an abomination to the Lord, and yet they had such arrogance to say, oh, nothing's going to happen to us because the Lord is on our side. But this verse tells us, the Lord says, no, disaster is coming your way. But more than an arrogance of ethnicity, uh, the Jews were very confused about uh, who they were spiritually. And we're going to see this more as we go through these verses. But they believed that being physical descendants of Abraham was what saved them spiritually. And both John the Baptist and Jesus addressed this error. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist, he was pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says to the Pharisees, Oh, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, We have Abraham. 
We have Abraham as our father, and that will save us. But he's saying, I'm telling you right now that these stones right here that are in the dust, God could make children of Abraham, if he wanted to, out of these stones. So you have no rights. Your descendants cannot save you at all. In John 8, Jesus was saying that if you were truly Abraham's children, then you would listen to me. But instead... You're saying that I am demon-possessed and you're trying to kill me. John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejo- rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Ah, oh, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I like to think that in that moment there was just a little earthquake <laughs> right then. Uh, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Um, So in this great couple verses, Jesus is not only confirming his deity as God, as the second member of the Trinity, but he's calling into question their faith. He's saying, "You, you say you are Abraham's children, but you've got that all mixed up. You get nothing from being simply related to him. Because if you were truly part of Abraham's spiritual family, you would believe in me. And we have our own forms of this, uh, don't we? There are many people here in America who consider themselves saved because culturally, man, pretty much everybody holds to some form of Christianity. Uh, Sometimes children fall into this air uh, because they've been raised in a Christian home and in the church. They believe that they're saved because of their parents. And we'll get to the idea of, of, of false security of a ceremony in a little bit, but many will look to an altar call, they look to a prayer or a baptism as their security, but none of this is true at all. There must be true repentance and faith in the person and work of Christ. So that's first. So first the Jews had false security from their lineage. Now false security from their knowledge of the law. So we'll spend a little bit more time on this one. Let's finish verse 17 and go to verse 24. We'll just read this again. And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself, While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so this section, we're going to break up into four smaller points. So if you are taking notes, you can just kind of do an indent and add this here. We're going to see what they know, then we're going to see what they teach, and then we'll see what they do, and then finally, uh, the consequences of all of this. So first, let's look at what they know, what they know. Well, their main boast is that they know the law. Uh, And we know from the Gospels how self-righteous and arrogant the Pharisees were concerning the law. And we see that this attitude has spread to the average person as well. 
They relied on their knowledge of the law and boasting. The boasting mentioned here in verse 17 where it says boast in God, that's not a reverent boast in the Lord. No, this is uh, uh, boasting actually in themselves. It's not reverence. Um, Psalm 147, 19 and 20, was possibly a favorite passage that the Jews like to recite at this time. It says, He declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Uh, many uh, of the missionaries that serve with Global Serve International, there's many who, that work among Muslim people groups in Asia. Uh, and of course, we know that the holy book for Muslims is the Quran. And there's some major differences uh, between how Muslims look at the Quran and how we look at the Bible. One of them is that uh, Muslims believe that the Quran has to be read and taught in Arabic. It cannot be um, read in any other language. If it, there's, of course, translations of the Quran into all, uh, many languages, but they do not believe that it is holy uh, and authoritative unless it is read in Arabic. Uh, and so, particularly in Asia where our missionaries work, uh, the young children will learn the Quran and they will spend uh, a lot of time memorizing long portions of the Quran in Arabic that they can recite, but they have no idea, absolutely no idea what it means. And there's very few uh, in these parts of the world that actually only the imams and some that are doing intense study will spend time to learn Arabic to be able to know what the Quran says. The average person has absolutely no idea. And so they rely on the imams to tell them. And of course, they know the five pillars of Islam and they know basically what they are supposed to do, the works they are supposed to do, uh, who Muhammad was and all of this. Uh, but they do not really know what the Quran says. Um, but they put a lot of stock and they put a lot of security in just being able to rattle off Arabic uh, and, and rattle off the Quran. And so they're very proud of that. They're, they're proud of owning the Quran in Arabic. And they, it's a, you know, they're very, um, very religious, very strict with how they treat the Quran. You cannot put it on the ground. There's not many things that you can do with it. Um, and so they find their security in just being able um, to recite it, but not actually necessarily living out or doing what it says. And the Jews at this time were very similar, very similar. They treated God's word in a similar way. They knew the law could not be obeyed perfectly, and so they put emphasis on just learning the facts of the law or even just having uh, copies of the scrolls. Uh, and the average person at this time did not have copies of the scrolls in their household, but they would have them in the village synagogue, and so they would be proud of the collection they would have as a village in the synagogue. And so they claimed to know his will, but as we'll soon see, they did not obey it. And so these phrases here in verse 18 give us a little bit more insight. It says in verse 18 um, that uh, you approve what is excellent. And so not only did they claim to know God's will, but they even claimed to know what was most important to God. Oh, you want to know? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what's most important to God right here. This other phrase, instructed from the law. Uh, and the word instruct here is the Greek word katakeo. Does that word sound familiar to anyone? Yes, it's where we get the word catechism from. 
uh, young Jewish, Jewish boys during Jesus' time were instructed rigorously uh, in the study of God's word. Ray Vanderland, he says that uh, children began their study at ages four to five in Beth Sefer, which is the equivalent of elementary school. Uh, the teaching focused primarily on the Torah, the first five books, emphasizing both reading and writing scripture. Large portions were memorized, and it is likely that many students knew the entire Torah by memory by the time this level of education was finished. That's amazing. Uh, the best students continued their study in Beth Midrash, that was secondary school, also taught by a rabbi of the community. Uh, here they studied the prophets and the writings in addition to the Torah and began to learn the interpretations of the oral Torah to learn how to make their own applications and interpretations, much like a catechism class might be in some churches today. Memorization continued to be important because most people did not have their own copy of the scripture, so they either had to know it by heart or go to the synagogue to consult the village scroll. Uh, memory was enhanced by reciting aloud, a practice still widely used in Middle Eastern uh, education, both Jewish and Muslim. Constant repetition was considered to be an essential element of learning. Um, so they were rigorously instructed. Uh, and some of you may know this word catechism. Maybe it was a part of your upbringing in the church. Maybe not. Um, some of you may not know it at all. But a catechism is just a simple way to memorize important truths about God's word. And there's a lot of benefits of doing a catechism. I would highly recommend it, actually. We use one with our kids uh, each week to help them understand who God is, uh, who the Trinity is, sanctification, justification, what is sin, these important truths about who God is and important doctrine. Um, but we have to remember that just knowledge of the law does not save, and we have to be careful that we're not falling into the same air as the Jewish people. Um, if our kids can just rattle off uh, memorized parts of, the, of doctrine and who God is, um, but they have not trusted in Christ. It's, it's worthless. And so, man, parents, I really encourage you not only to be teaching God's word, but just to be over and over communicating the gospel to them. Every time that we have to discipline one of our kids, we try and sit down and we just communicate the gospel to them again. We say, this is, this is why we need Jesus, because of our sin. We have to do that. So, Next, what they teach. So this is what they know, what they teach. So not only did they find security in the law, but also found in what they taught. And so because the Jewish people had been gifted from the law, they would be the most natural uh, teachers of it, right? Well, the problem was that they had forfeited their responsibility to teach because of their continued disobedience and unfaithfulness to the same law that they wanted to teach. And so these phrases here in verse 19, these phrases are all directed to the Gentiles. Uh, they claim to be guides to the blind Gentiles. And yet, what did Jesus call the Pharisees in Matthew 23? You know? What kind of guides were they? Blind guides. Jesus says, yeah, you're, you want to be guides to these supposed blind Gentiles, but you yourselves, you yourself are blind guides. Uh, they wanted to be lights to the world, and this is exactly what they had been called to do. In Matthew 5, what did Jesus tell his disciples? He says, uh, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and bring glory to the Father in heaven. But the self-righteous Jew considered Gentiles in these next phrases. They, they considered them foolish. They considered them children. 
They were like children in their understanding of the law. Uh, And this last phrase here in verse 20, it says, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The the word embodiment in the Greek is the Greek word morphosis. And most commentators say that another good way to translate that is to use the word appearance. So they had the appearance of knowing, obeying the law, but in fact they were hypocrites doing the opposite. We see this in another place in God's word. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. And this is referring to, to false teachers here. But the word there, appearance, is the exact same Greek word. It's morphosis used in our passage. So what they knew and what they taught, but now what did they actually do? Uh, David Guzik says, God applies his law to both our actions and our attitudes. Sometimes we only want our attitudes evaluated and sometimes only our actions, but God will hold us accountable for both motives and actions. And so we should make a distinction here between orthodoxy. We use that word a lot. Orthodoxy means to have the right doctrine, but there's also another word we don't use as often. It's orthopraxy. Orthopraxy, that means to have the right practice or do the right thing. Because all of us are, uh, know, and we're probably very quick to say, right, what is the right thing, but do we actually do it? Are we self-righteous? Do we hold others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves? And Paul is saying to the Jews here, you have no right to teach others, no right. Psalm 50 warns us about this as well. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and slander your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Another indictment. And even to true believers, we are warned as believers in James to take seriously the responsibility of teacher teaching because teachers are held to a higher standard. Well, Paul mentions a couple areas of hypocrisy here. He mentions stealing. He mentions committing adultery and robbing temples. Uh, So the first two are pretty clear to us. So let's just talk a little bit more about the third area where he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And we know that in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews struggled with idolatry, and that's putting it very lightly, actually. Um, However, because of the great punishment that the Lord gave them in in sending the Jews into exile, ever since then, they had purged idolatry from, uh, from among their midst, and they were very, very much against it. And we know that even from Matthew 22, that there was an issue with using Roman money because it had Caesar's face on it. And so this phrase about robbing temples, it could refer um, to the Jews uh, withholding the proper amount of offering that they were supposed to give the Lord. Um, But there's a couple other angles as well. Josephus, he was the Jewish historian of the day. He speaks of some Jews that conspired to steal money from the temple. He tells of one situation where they persuaded a rich Roman lady to give a large sum of money to the temple, but instead of delivering to the temple, they uh, took it for themselves and they split it split the money amongst themselves. And then there's another angle, the possibility that some Jews um, could have been guilty of actually robbing pagan temples and justifying this by saying, oh, we're not, we're not robbing 
uh, the synagogue. We're not robbing Jews. We're robbing the uh, unrighteous pagan Gentiles. Uh, But in the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites were specifically forbidden to get financial gain from the gold of pagan nations. Look here, Deuteronomy 7, the carved Images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So they weren't doing God any favors by robbing these temples. Uh, They were doing it for personal gain, and they're disobeying the Lord in the process. And so what were the consequences of all this? Well, verse 24 tells us, it says, The name of of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 52, where the Lord through Isaiah was indicting the rulers of the Israelites. It says that they continually wailed and they complained and they were not trusting the Lord. They were not following the Lord. And so he says in Isaiah uh, that the surrounding nation are despising my name. They despise my name. And this is so serious, friends, very serious. The Gentiles were cursing the name of God because of the conduct of the Jews. And this even has more serious repercussions for us as believers because we have been given all of God's word. We have the complete revelation of God. We've been given more light than the Jews had during Paul's time. And we've seen this, uh, the effects of this, haven't we? We've seen the effect of what happens when the witness of believers is ruined and trashed because of sin. We've seen it, of course, in the high-profile celebrity Christians who have fallen in celebrity Christians who have fallen into sin. But we've probably also seen it in our own lives and maybe in our own families and friends. Those who name the name of Christ but persistently and blatantly live in sin show that they're taking God's name in vain. And that's one way we can do, we can break that commandment when we are hypocritical and we live in outright sin and yet we name the name of Christ, we take God's name in vain. And those who are exposed in their sin, of course, they lead the world to ridicule the Lord, to ridicule Christianity. Unbelievers see no reason to repent and trust the Lord for salvation. And honestly, it would be better off for these people, whether they are true Christians or not, to hide their Christianity Um, because their living is such an obvious contradiction of God's word that it leads to a mockery of Christ. It's horrible. So we've seen, friends, this morning that the Jew can find no security in their lineage, no security in their knowledge of the law, because they've clearly failed in that area, as as we all have. Um, But last, maybe they can find some security in their ceremonies. Let's see. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. So here we see Paul explaining the true meaning of circumcision. And it's not something that the Jews should be putting their trust in. 
We know that God created the ceremony of circumcision as a mark of the covenant that he made with Abraham back in Genesis 17. Every male at eight days old was to be circumcised. And the Lord took this very seriously. And we see this because uh, just a couple centuries later, Moses, for some reason, did not circumcise one of his sons. And his wife had to step in. His wife, Zipporah, did the circumcision herself to avoid God's wrath. And the Jews were to follow this command as a ceremony of remembrance of what the Lord did, how he chose and blessed Abraham, and as an act of obedience to the Lord. But Paul is saying here that this ceremony itself has no spiritual power. In fact, he says it's only a value if you obey the law, only if you are living in obedience to God's will. But if you break the law, which they had, this ceremony has no value to you because it does not bring any merit by itself. And this is a reminder to us that salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. The saints in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to the Messiah coming. We are saved by looking back at what Christ has done. And in fact, although it was a reminder of God's covenant with them, it was also more of a mark of judgment and obligation. It was a constant reminder of the Jews' sinfulness and their obligation to obey God's law. And we see this in Galatians 5. Paul says here, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. To keep the whole law. In Galatians 5.3. And Paul here was speaking to uh, false teachers, the Judaizers, who said in order to be saved, the new Christians, they had to keep the Mosaic law. They keep all of it. And it's interesting to see how heretical this became. The Midrash, which is a collection of rabbinical Jewish commentary on the Torah, the first five books, uh, even went so far to say this. This is a quote. God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. Can you believe that? That's ridiculous. Abraham sitting at the gates of hell and just watching and waiting. No, you, can't, you don't have to go in here because you're circumcised. The book of Jeremiah actually tells us the exact opposite. Look at what this says. Jeremiah 9, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all those who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the farthest corners, who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So he includes Judah right along with Egypt, with Edom, Ammon, and Moab. These pagan nations, he puts them right up in there. He says, circumcision, it doesn't matter. You are going to be punished and judged. Disobedience to God put the circumcised Israelites in the same category as the uncircumcised Gentiles. Well, verse 26 and 27, they flip the coin uh, to the other side, and they say, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So what is pleasing to God is obeying his will. Circumcision is just a symbolic reminder of this. Uh, he says, keeping the precepts of the law is of great value uh, rather than merely getting circumcised but not desiring to obey God. 
Um, God will look just as favorably on the Gentile who obeys the law uh, but is not circumcised as he does the circumcised Jew who obeys the law. And as he is going to say in a moment, circumcision is a matter of the heart, not merely performing the ritual. But before he gets there, he lays down a stunning, a stunning rebuke uh, to these self-righteous Jews. He's saying, not only will this uncircumcised Gentile please God, but they are going to sit in judgment over you, you disobedient Jews. What a sting that had to have on those who were reading this. He's saying, you have the law. You've been given the sign of circumcision. Yet those who know nothing of these things will condemn you because they understand what it truly means. What a rebuke. Uh, Charles Hodge, he was a a great Princeton theologian uh, back in the 1800s. And he said, whenever true religion declines, the disposition to lay undue stress on external rights is stressed. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, supposed that circumcision had the power to save them. Now remember, friends, all of this is leading up to chapter 3, where Paul is going to summarize all of this and say, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one can live up to these standards that I'm telling you right now. And then he's going to give, start to give some hope starting in verse 21 in the second half of chapter 3. And we're going to get there soon. But finally in verse 28 and 29, Paul summarizes these thoughts. He summarized this idea of false security, that Jewish lineage has no spiritual benefit by itself. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Uh, and he also, he summarizes two things. First, that the Jewish lineage has no spiritual benefit, and also he reiterates that the ceremony by itself has no value. Circumcision is not outward or physical. It's inward. And so putting these two summaries together, Paul's saying that the true child of God, shown in the life of the faithful Jew, is an inward. It's an inward reality. The true mark of a child of God is not circumcision, but the godly condition of one's heart. And that's true for us as well today. Uh, the true mark of a Christian is not if they've been baptized, if they come to church, if they take communion, uh, if they do these things. No, the true mark of God is shown by the fruit of the Spirit that's displayed, that is an outworking of your heart that's been changed, the outworking of your heart that's been made new, and you're walking in newness of life. And then finally, Paul says here that salvation is not gained by obeying the law. Salvation comes by the Spirit. And if you look at in verse 29 there, notice that the word Spirit is capitalized. He's talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit working in the believer's heart, not by the letter of the Word, which, of course, uh, is true. The Word is true, and we know that the Word has power, but it's the Holy Spirit who does the work in our hearts. And so because of all this, he says, where does praise come from? Does it come from man or from God? Well, he says, not from men. In fact, men are more likely to ridicule us uh, because of our salvation. And so we have to find hope and security in God alone. 2 Corinthians 10.18 tells us that it's the Lord that commends us. So we have to boast in him, boast in him alone. And this is a reminder to us. Next week, 
we are looking forward to another baptism, which is full of joy and excitement. I'm so excited uh, for next week. But we clearly know that baptism as a ceremony adds no merit, no merit to our salvation. Baptism, communion, speaking in tongues, they all have false teachings surrounding them in this area of salvation, that somehow they add some merit. And we reject those. We reject those as heretical distortions. Uh, But unfortunately, many look to ceremonies as what has saved them, or at least is helping them, at least is getting them there, helping save them, instead of Christ alone. Christ alone. Well, next Sunday, Pastor Pilgrims, he's going to continue into chapter 3, where we're going to see that Paul says, well, actually, the Jew does have an advantage in some area. Um, But more than that, we're going to see the faithfulness, the righteousness of God on display. And so how can we apply this text as we close uh, this morning? It's easy to say, well, you know, Paul is just speaking to the, the Jews here of his time, and of course that's true, but there are several overarching principles that we can apply to our lives. And actually, we've, we've already mentioned several as we've been walking through the text. I hope you've seen those this morning. Uh, but there's also some overarching application to all of chapter 2. Um, and so this is very simple, um, but three things for us this morning. Uh, remember, reject, and receive. So first, we must remember. We must remember that God sets the standard for righteousness. We do not set the standard for righteousness. God does in his word. And what is that standard? Perfection. So because it's perfection, no one can measure up to this. And so because it's that, we have to reject. We have to reject self-righteous thinking and behavior. Who are we? Who are we to elevate ourselves, to become self-righteous, to become hypocritical, to somehow put ourselves, to put us over others because, well, I've done this thing or I've done that thing. None of us measure up. None of us measure up. We have nothing to say. We have nothing to say except boast in God. So may we reject, and I know we all struggle with it. I struggle with it as well. I'm quick to get annoyed, quick to judge Others, that's a sin in my own life that I need to be repenting of. Um, but we must reject self-righteous thinking that we have. We have no cause, nowhere to stand on this, nowhere else to go. And then we need to receive. We need to receive praise and security from God alone. The praise and justification that comes from God is all we need, friends. It's all we need. Let us rest in that this morning. Let's be reminded of the example in a negative way of the Jews this morning. Not rely on the law and boast in ourselves, but boast in God. Cling to Christ. Boast in Christ. That's what Paul says. We have no room to boast in anything except Christ alone. So, my friends, may the God of hope uh, fill you with all joy this morning and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for teaching us. Uh, Sometimes, Lord, it is difficult as we think about some of these things in Jewish culture, circumcision and others, to to wrap our minds around it. Um, Please help us in that. I hope 
uh, by your power, Lord, that we've communi- I've communicated that clearly this morning. Thank you, most of all, for our salvation, that we know that salvation is not gained by any work, any work of the law, uh, but by the work of Christ alone. And so I ask for your help, Holy Spirit, for, our, uh, for each one of us here, for our congregation, Lord, that they would re- we would remember what the standard is, Lord, that we would reject self-righteous, hypocritical religiosity, Lord, that we would cling to you and look to you as our only hope, as our only security, Lord, in this, in this age when many are finding, trying to find hope, trying to find security in other things. May we be grounded in your words, in the truth of your word, in the truth that, Lord, when you save us, you never let us go. When you call us to yourself, you will not cast us out. So we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together, to be reminded, to edify one another, to sing together, Lord, in our fellowship. We ask that you would um, teach us now and we would sing in joy uh, as we remember that you are the one that holds us fast. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.